0: Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 9. This is our teaching series, How It Changes Everything. We are working our way through the book of Acts. We're going to start at verse 32, Acts chapter 9. This weekend's message is titled, Born Again. I had someone send me this email, uh, this message last week. It says, The weatherman said the temperature is going to reach extremely high levels today and everyone should check on the elderly and senile. And then in big, bold, red letters it said, how are you? (laughs) I had two people send that to me and uh, they are no longer my Facebook friends. I appreciate your concern for me though. And uh, so, just before we get into our study this morning, turn to the person next to you and say, how are you? (laughs) Let me give you a little bit of a summary, kind of a summary statement of uh, the book of Acts. It's uh, in this, this kind of Thought or this idea. The Christian life is not about a set of beliefs that you get a hold of, but it's about a set of beliefs that get a hold of you. Um, you haven't really seen the gospel that is, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. You haven't really seen the gospel until you are seized by it. The book of Acts is about a group of people who encountered the risen Lord and Savior and their lives were never, ever the same. And their impact continues to this day in our lives through this writing. Pretty amazing. And so this, this impact, this, this life change, the Bible calls it, the theological term is regeneration, conversion, or being born again. Jesus had an interesting conversation with a uh, religious man in John chapter 3. He came late at night, incognito, afraid of the criticism he would receive from his peers. And uh, he was asking, he was inquiring about who Jesus is and what, what this life is about and all these things. And Jesus made it very clear to him. He said, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And here's this very religious, very prominent man who's very moral and righteous, and he just levels with him. You cannot even see or enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. In fact, he kind of goes on and, and uh, chastises him a bit by saying, in fact, you should know this because you're a teacher of Israel. Pretty interesting. Third chapter of John. So what that tells us, certainly, and you've heard me say this many times before, there's a major difference. There's an eternal difference between moral restrained will, a moral restrained will versus a supernaturally transformed will. So you can be very moral, you can be very righteous, you can know a lot about God and know a lot about Scripture and not be born again. Because being born again is about a supernatural change on the inside. Your heart is transformed. Your heart is transformed. And uh, In fact, the Bible even says that if you're born once, you'll die twice. In fact, if you want to do an interesting study, go to uh, Bible Gateway and type in the word second death, and it'll bring up at least five times in the book of Revelation. It's pretty frightening, actually, if you read it. It talks about the second death that awaits those who reject Christ, who have not experienced this being born again, the second birth. So if, you, if you're born once, you're going to die twice. If you're born twice, you will die once. Born twice? Yeah, physical and spiritual. You only die once. That is physical. And so, pretty important topic. I'm glad you're here. We're going to talk about it. So, are you born again? And what does it mean to be born again? That's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, um, this created world... Your inspired word reveals your breathtaking glory. And but it's with the eyes of our heart and not our head that we are able to see it. And so I I pray the words of even what Paul prays for the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1:18: Lord, open the eyes of our heart that we may see you more clearly, savor you more deeply, so that we can show you to this world more effectively so that we can show your glory as it relates to this amazing new life we have in you of being born again. Lord, show yourself to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said. I'm going to do a lot of reading this morning. I'm going to do a little different this morning. We're going to read a a, a section, as you can see, laid out there on your notes. And by the way, you need to bring your Bible here if you don't have a Bible. uh, Get one, okay? that's kind of nice, isn't it, for me to tell you. Go, go buy one. Actually, you don't need to buy one. You can pick one up in the information. We'll give one to you. It's an ESV that we study from. And bring it with you. Keep your Bible open. We're going to work through this text. And then we'll comment. I'll give you the fill in the blanks as we work through it. We're answering the question, what does it mean to be born again? I think this text really gives us some really clear answers. So we begin reading Acts 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verses 32 through 43 is our first section we're going to read. And... Uh, What did we just finish up in this story so far of the early church that Christ has transformed their lives and now they're going out into the the whole world? And we just saw the transformation. We saw the conversion of who? Paul. Yeah, Saul who became Paul. He was a persecutor of the church and became a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How unlikely would that be? I mean, it's unbelievable. So we're on the On the sure tale of that story, and now we head into another story here of Peter, verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda And Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Pretty amazing. The story goes on. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room, Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, "'Please come to us without delay.' So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside... Probably needed to do that just to concentrate, huh? All the noise and ruckus that was going on in there. And knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And then this is important, important point here. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So what we have going on here is God's beginning to work in Simon, that is Peter's heart. He's a bit racist, you need to know. And you will see this unfold as he's working through his own racism and his issues. But he, for him to stay with a, a, a tanner, a man who deals with dead animals... Uh, that's pretty unusual for a Jew. So you see God's already working there. So some pretty profound things here. Here's the first to fill in the blank on your notes. What does it mean to be born again? I think it's very clear. It's not just in these verses, but it's throughout the book of Acts. Jesus Christ is alive and living in you today. Romans 8, 11. Well, let me, let me uh, back up there just before this. Uh, it, it's important for us to understand that as we study through the book of Acts, it's almost a mirror image of what, if you were to read through the four gospels, you're going to see a lot of similar, uh, similar words that are being spoken by the disciples, uh, that were spoken by Jesus, and even deeds that are done by the disciples that were done by Jesus. And so, the words and deeds of these disciples emulated their Lord and Savior. Why is that? Why do we see that throughout the book of Acts? Because Jesus Christ is alive and living in them. And that's what it means to be born again. That's that's one aspect of it. Now let me go to the verses. I got some verses there. Uh, Romans eight eleven. Uh, Paul writes. He says, "The spirit that raised Christ from the dead, if the spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then the spirit that raised Christ from the dead will make alive your mortal body." Now think about that thought just for a minute. If the spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, well, that's pretty significant. And he says that the Spirit will make alive your mortal body. It will make a drastic difference in your life. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. So he's talking about this identifying with the substitutionary death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's called substitutionary atonement. It's a big theological idea and concept that when you're getting baptized, in essence, you're identifying with the substitutionary death of Jesus. He died for you, and he gave you his righteousness. So I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what motivates my life is faith and love. There's this exchange that took place that I've got Christ living in me through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit is what he's saying. By faith, and I'm motivated out of love to live that kind of life and, and reflect him. Jesus, before he hung on the cross, he was with his disciples. called the upper room discourse as he hangs out with his disciples. Gives them a lot of pretty significant stuff. One of the things that he says, he says, if you believe in me, greater works will you do. You mean to tell me that I'm going to do greater works than Jesus? Yeah, all of us together will. In fact, Jesus can only be in one place at one time. And so what he's saying is that we will actually represent Christ on this planet and, and the greater works is in the fact that if there's about a billion people who claim to be Christians, everywhere there's a Christian is the presence of Jesus. Jesus Christ is alive and living in you and I today if we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty significant. It's pretty significant. I was meditating on it, that this last week and I was even thinking, and as I was praying, and I felt like the Lord told me specifically that that, that alone, some of you, there's a few that are going to come this morning that need to hear that alone. That statement alone will transform your life. That when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is alive and living in you right now. Now think about the things that you're facing. What are, what are some obstacles that you're struggling with? Is it financial? Is it relational? Is it a physical struggle? It doesn't matter. (laughs) Because Jesus Christ is alive and living in you right now. That's amazing. Do you understand the weight of that, the glory of that? I mean, these guys, everywhere they went, they knew that Jesus was with them. That's why they were so aggressively praying for people. I think we forget that, therefore we don't pray as aggressively as we could or should. Not only for our own needs, but for the needs of those around us. Jesus Christ is alive and living in you today. No matter what you're facing, His power in you is greater than anything that you'll ever face. That's a fact. Do you believe that? Now, how do you how do you get that? How do you begin to live in the reality of that? I mean, last week. Uh, I struggled with that reality because I got stressed out. I had all these things piling on, but I had to take a moment and kind of withdraw inwardly and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, time out. Jesus Christ is alive and living in me today. And I began to draw upon that resource, the reality of that truth. Because in, that, in those moments, all the, all the stressors in my life were much bigger than the reality of Jesus Christ being alive and living in me today. Sometimes we need to do that. That's why you come to church. That's why we read our Bible. That's why we pray. We, we need that. I need to be reminded of that. And I'll tell you what, I mean, you will, you will, go, you will go hard after life. I'm going to sit back and wait and let life happen to you. You're going to aggressively take the gospel to, the, to this world, to your neighborhood, to where your work, wherever it might be. When someone has a need, you begin to pray for them. You ask them, can I pray for you? That's what you have happening here with the disciples. So how do you get there? Well, here's how I believe that you you get to this place is that that the gospel isn't about how dedicated we are. It's not about mustering up more dedication. Okay, Pastor, I'm gonna be more dedicated. No, that's not what the gospel is about. It's not about about how dedicated we are to Christ, but it is is about how dedicated are coming alive to his total dedication to us through the cross and showing it by living fully satisfied in him. See, you can't just see this. You've got to be seized by this. You've got to realize what he did on the cross for you. He loves you. And so some of you came here today and you just needed to hear that. And I'm telling you, whatever you're facing... Jesus Christ is alive and living in you, in you today, if you have put your faith in him. You can almost have an attitude that says, bring it on, whatever. Whatever may come in my life, bring it on, because Jesus Christ is greater in me than anything that I face. See, that would be the attitude. If you really understood this idea, we sang this song, if God is for us, who can be against us? If you really begin to embrace that truth, And live in the reality of it. It's one thing to have the head knowledge. It's another thing to have the heart knowledge. We talk about the heart knowledge all the time. So it's not just just getting a grip on those truths. It's that those truths get a grip on you. You begin to hear that song for the hundredth time. And before long it just begins to take hold of your life or you begin to read that text, or you meditate on a particular text of Scripture, and that's how it often happens with me. Because as I was going through this Scripture this last week, and as I meditated on that, it took a while before the reality of that, Jesus Christ is alive and living in me today. So what do I need to fear? What are you sweating? What are you sweating? I'm telling you, you don't need to sweat that stuff. He loves you. Oh, how he loved you. <laughs> and, and it hits us at strange moments, like when we're doing announcements. You know, like Scott was up here, and all of a sudden, he's just overwhelmed with that. I don't know what it is. It's just, there are times you just get, you just, all of a sudden, it goes from head to heart, and you could be doing some, you know, whatever it might be, but God just gets a hold of your heart. And it just, it, it infuses you with confidence. You sense his presence. You have the assurance the assurance of that, the, the assurance of the cross. So that's what it means to be born again, is that you begin to live with this reality, and it's, it's this aggressive reality. Jesus Christ is alive and living in you today. Let's continue reading chapter 10. We're going to get through this whole chapter today. We will. And uh, it'll be fun because there's some great stuff here. And at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, and... Uh, of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now, notice this, what it says, how it describes him. A devout man who feared God with all of his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God came in and, and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? I shouldn't laugh, but it's almost like, ah. You know, if, if that happened to us, wow, we would wet our pants, okay? I'm surprised it didn't say it there, that he wet his pants. Because that's, that's what would happen, I'll guarantee you. And uh, where was I? That just threw me completely off on that one, didn't I? He came, and he stared at him in terror. What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, keep in mind, this guy's not born again. He's not a Christian. And yet God hears his prayers and sees his heart. And now send men of Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Let's stop there. Let me give you the next point on the notes. So what does it mean to be born again? Jesus Christ is alive and living in you today. But here's the next one. It comes through God's initiative. It comes through God's initiative. I have the privilege of teaching a Game of Life class. I've done this for well, since the beginning of this church, and almost everybody typically goes through this, if you want to be involved in ministry, that is leading others, it's important that you go through the game of life. Uh, it's, it's somewhat foundational, but it really gives you a little bit of the vision and the values of what Desert Breeze is about, and you get a chance to see my heart and see the heart of our leaders, because each of our leaders kind of parade through and give their personal testimony and kind of see what Desert Breeze is about. But the very first class that I teach in this is… Uh, it's called On Deck, and it deals with a lot of real tough questions, such as uh, How do we know there is a God? Is it rational to believe in a God who allows suffering? Is it rational to believe in Jesus? What about this Bible? Is it credible? You know, what evidence is there to give validity or veracity to Jesus, the Bible, who God is? How does He interact with us? Those are big stumbling points in many people's lives before they even become Christians, so we try to get those hurdles out of the way. One of the questions that we start off with is How do we know there is a God? If I were to ask you that question, Christian, how would you answer that? How do you know there is a God? Well, the answer is this. It's not by man's speculation, but it's by God's revelation. We know there is a God because God has revealed himself to us. And then the next question, obvious question, would be, well, how has he revealed himself to us? So if someone were to ask you, how do you know there's a God? Because God has revealed himself to us. And then the next question should be, so how has he revealed himself to us? He's revealed himself to us. I put it down on your notes. Romans 1, it says creation. Romans 2 is our conscience. Romans 3 is uh, the commandments or this book, the Bible. Uh, And then Romans 4 is ultimately through Christ. So God has certainly revealed himself to us. There's evidence of God all around us. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, we may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The Bible tells us in John six forty four 44 that, uh, in fact, Jesus said this, that no one comes to Him unless God is drawing Him, unless God is working in His, in his life. And so, what we have happening in Cornelius' life is that he's responding to the level of revelation that he's received. Oftentimes, people will say, well, what about people that have never heard about Jesus? Are they going to hell? Well, actually… The fact is, is that how have they responded to the level of revelation that they have received? They have creation conscience. They might not have commandments, and we would want to get them God's word so that ultimately they could encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. But it really comes down to, the Bible makes it clear, to whom much is given, much is required. So how have they responded to that level? He was responding to the level of of creation conscience, and then obviously the commandments because he was being taught possibly the Torah by the Jews. And so he had some kind of an understanding of God and had a heart for God and was responding to that level of revelation and yet he still needed Jesus because what's interesting about this story is that the angel doesn't show up and say hey you're doing a great job keep up the good work eventually you'll make it to heaven he doesn't say that he says you need to go find this guy because he's going to give you some further truth that you need in essence he's saying you need to be born again all the good works in your life isn't going to be enough and we're going to talk about that in just a moment Put that on the shelf. We'll bring it back off the shelf in a in a moment. Let's talk about this whole idea of how God reveals Himself to us. So John six forty four says that, that no one comes to God unless God God is taking the initiative and He reveals Himself to us. He's drawing us. We were uh, we had a chance to get away for a week. I was going for a couple weekends. Thank you for allowing me to do that. And we were uh, suffering for Jesus in Oceanside at sixty eight degrees. Oh, it was so hard, but uh, it was a great time to get away. But there's something that we do traditionally. I have my kids there, and family, and grandkids, and we'll take this long walk. It's about a half mile, and then another quarter of a mile out on the pier there in Oceanside, from where we're staying. And we'll take the walk, and we'll go out to Ruby's and have milkshakes. Anybody ever have a Ruby milkshake? Yum, they're good. And so while we were heading out there, I was kind of getting ahead of the pack and overheard my grandson, he had a hold of his grandma's hand, he's four-year-old Brayden, he said, Grandpa, Grandpa, don't get too far out there, you're going to get lost. He said that a couple different times, I'm thinking, did his grandma tell him something about me? Like... I'm directionally challenged. <laughs> I am directionally challenged. I am. It's like, you no, know, which way are we going? I can come out of a, you know, shopping mall and forget where I parked. You know, which side was this? Okay, north, south, east, west. Which corner is that? When you tell me what corner it's on, I've got to sit and think about it and take my shoes off and look and try to figure it out. I am. I'm terribly directionally challenged. But it was kind of, it was, it was cute. It was funny. And uh, he said, Grandpa, you're going to get lost. And I, I kind of likened that to often I hear people say who have become Christians. I found Jesus Jesus wasn't lost. So I think it's, it's kind of awkward, you know, when we use that kind of language. Jesus wasn't lost. Uh, I found God. No, no, he found you. You were lost. I understand what you're saying, that you fit, finally your eyes were open. But the reality is you would have never come to him unless he awakened you to the reality of him and drawing you as he's working in your life. See, you're not going to be born again unless God takes the initiative. He's already taken the initiative, obviously, through the level of revelation that we receive each and every day, creation, conscience. For us in America, we have the commandments. We have ultimately Christ. We've all heard about Christ. And so for us to to deny the reality of how God has revealed himself to us and continues to pursue us, that's suicide. That's spiritual suicide. And yet... And yet there's something in our hearts that when we begin to understand, in fact, C.S. Lewis put it this way once again. He said, man's search for God is like the mouse's search for the cat. The mouse doesn't search for the cat. The cat searches for the mouse. You don't search for God. I know you might think you're seeking God. He's seeking you. If you're seeking God, it's because he's seeking you. If you have the slightest inclination turning towards God, it's because he desires you, he loves you, he's pursuing you. The fact that you want him is evidence that he is pursuing you. The fact that you are here that you would have any, the slightest bit of hunger for God is the fact that he has a ferocious hunger for you and he's drawing you in. Unless, of course, you were forced to come here by some friends and some of you do have a little rope burns on your hands and feet. You're a drug here. Maybe not. But when I talk, when we sing these songs, And if there's something that draws you, 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 you'll begin to inquire. The Bible says, no man seeks God. We don't seek God. Romans 3 says that. But I'm telling you, he seeks you. (laughs) He pursues you. The God of the galaxies desires, has a desire for you to know him and to know his glory. Because he knows that He created you in such a way that that's the only place you'll find your deepest satisfaction is in Him and in His glory and then making His glory known to this world. (laughs) He's pursuing you. He's pursuing you. He loves you. He bought you. He died for you. He justifies you. When you commit your life to Him, basically that's what you come to an understanding of is that He justifies you. Your sins, past, present, future, they're gone. No longer to be held against you. He's in the process of sanctifying you if you've indeed put your faith in him. He's putting your life together. He's bringing about wholeness. And one of these days, he will glorify you. You will be with him for all eternity. That is amazing. It's about his work and us responding to his work. A sense of his absence is a sign of his presence. Tim Keller. Here's the next point. It is the opposite and opposes religion. So, what does it mean to be born again? Jesus is alive and living in you today, comes through God's initiative, and that it is the opposite and opposes religion. I know that most people, when you say, hey, why don't you come and become a Christian? Why don't you come to church? Why don't, most people, would you guys agree with me on this? That most people think of moralism, oh, I gotta get my act together, I gotta become virtuous, I gotta start living a different life. Most people think that Christianity is about me getting my act together or changing my lifestyle or doing something different and then following Jesus. Wrong, it's called moralism, it's called religion. It is the opposite, Christianity is the opposite and even opposes even opposes moralism, which happens to be, I believe, the greatest competitor of Christianity. And oftentimes we confuse Christianity with moralism, living a virtuous life. Got to get my act together. Got to be a nice person. And the reason for that, obviously, is, is this. in this writing, this guy was a very nice person. He was a great person. He's highly commended by the people around and yet the angel shows up and says, hey, you need to talk to this Peter. This Peter needs to show you something that you have yet to come to terms with, and that's Jesus, as we will see in the story. Now, why, why is moralism uh, the greatest competitor of Christianity? That is, living a moral, virtuous life. I'm not saying that's not important. That's, that's the byproduct. That comes later on. But there's something that's more fundamental to the Christian life than moralism, getting your act together. Coming to terms with how you're living. Why why is that so so important? Because the Bible says that the problem with human with the human race is much more fundamental than just behavioral modification, than a moral restrained will, as I said. We need a supernaturally transformed heart is what we need. And uh, I want you to discuss that. What is fundamentally the problem? What is the fundamental problem? <laughs> That's a big, big question I'm asking you this morning. I'm going to discuss it in, you know, 15, 20 seconds. What is fundamentally wrong with us on this planet Earth? I mean, you know that there's something wrong. This place is messed up. Uh, turn on the news. I mean, I can't help, but when I watch the news, when I was watching the news of, in, in Africa where you got the famine happening, I cry every time I watch that news. It rips my heart out. unless you've been not paying attention to the news, there's some pretty devastating things happening. And fundamentally, there's a problem that we've struggled with on this planet Earth for years. Go ahead and talk it over with the person next to you real quick. and Then I'll come back and answer it for you. anybody know what's fundamentally wrong with us why do we have the problems we have personally individually but also community wise look at the debt crisis we're in currently look at the problems that we have in america today look at the problems that go throughout the world what is fundamentally wrong with us anybody there was somebody in the first service that answered it out what is it selfishness good good answer greed yeah that, that's greed is certainly a symptom a symptomatic of selfishness yeah real quick Yell yelled out what's that Oh, you both answered at the same time. Okay, real quick, the guy in the back. Yes. Separation from, God. Separation from God, absolutely. Yeah, we're separated from God. And the reason why we're separated from God, what did you say here? I am. I am. Yeah, yeah, what, here's, here's the issue. It, all of you got it. Here's the issue right here, is that it is putting ourselves in the place of God making ourselves our own Savior and Lord. That's, that's fundamentally what's wrong with us. That's fundamentally the default mode of the Christian life, and it's fundamentally what we proclaim in America today, and we push, hey, come on, be your own Lord and Savior. Yeah, basically, and that's what gets us into trouble. And there's two ways that we do this. There's two ways that we become our own, we put ourselves in the place of God. One is by breaking all the rules, Self-discovery. I don't need God. I can do it on my own. I'll discover it. I'll give my heart to the pursuit of this or that or any number of things. We break all the rules. I don't need God. I don't even know if there really is a God. Anyway, I can discover it on my own. I'm going to pursue money or fame, whatever it might be. Relationships. That's one way we play God. Here's the other way: is not by breaking all the rules, but by keeping all the rules. Moral conformity. I'm going to be religious. I'm going to appease God. It's a form of paganism. If I appease the gods or the God, maybe I will be blessed. I go to church because I, I'm blessed and so that I can, I can live for me then. Both of those ways are fundamentally the root of our, you know, the root problem is that both are ways to soul-distorting self-centeredness and pride See, let's just focus on the the one way keeping all the rules. There are two ways. Nothing wrong with keeping the rules. I think we need a lot of people to keep the rules. I want to live next door to someone that likes to keep the rules. Would you agree with that? And that their kids keep the rules. They don't come in and break into my home and steal my stuff. And I, mean, I like when people keep the rules. We want people to keep the rules. The problem is there's two reasons why people keep the rules. So there's two ways that we play God, but out of the, the one of, breaking, of keeping the rules, there's two reasons why people keep the rules. And the one way is religion. I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. So if I obey, God will accept me Oh, praise God! You have just now become the elder brother in the prodigal son story in the 15th chapter of Luke. I know I sound a little cynical, but that's a bad. I was there. I've been there. That's the default mode of my heart. See, this is the elder son who left the father without leaving the farm, and he had an attitude of entitlement and feeling like, "Dad, you are indebted to me because I've been a good boy." You see. That's, that's the one way that we, we obey the rules. It's called religion. And by the way, that, that creates an attitude not only of an entitlement and that you are forever indebted to me, God, but it creates anger when things don't go the way you think they should go because, hey, I went to church, I read my Bible, I prayed, I did some nice things, and this is what I get? I get cancer, I lose my job, I, where are you, God? So that's that elder brother mindset there's also pride because when you hit the punch list, when you're doing all the right things and you look down on others that aren't. Hey, I'm, I'm more, I don't go to movies like that. I'm more spiritual. See, there, There's this, because, I don't, because you don't go to those movies or whatever, whatever it is. And then there's this joyless compliance to rules so the first way that we keep all the rules is by being religion, religious. I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. But, but then here's the gospel. Here's another reason why you, want to, you would want to keep the rules. The gospel says, I'm accepted by God through what Christ has done, cross. He's done that for me, therefore I obey him. Can you see the difference? I don't obey him to get his blessing. Listen, you have his blessing. Oh my goodness. Do you have any idea what he's accomplished for you? You don't earn it. You can not earn it. There's no way you could ever earn it. You just enter into it by faith through Jesus. That's amazing. And so our obedience comes out of our having been blessed. Major difference. Major difference between the two. Most people don't get it. Most people in American churches don't get that. Here's what's interesting. By the way, that kind of an attitude, when I am seized by what Jesus Christ has done, I am forever indebted to him. I want to live my life for him. I have an attitude of gratitude no matter what goes down in my life. I know that all the bases are covered through Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the difference between the attitude. Just look at your attitude. Is it entitlement or is it gratitude? Oh, my goodness. I can't believe, I can't believe I've got him. That Jesus is alive and living in me. Today, I can't believe it. I'm a screw up. I did some really bad things and said some bad things. Okay. join the party. We all did. We all do. But he loves us. He loves us. And that begins to transform our, our hearts and our minds and our lives. Cornelius, though devout, feared God, with his household, gave alms generously, prayed continually, still needed to be born again. Now, I started thinking about this this last week. Uh, I was trying to understand. If you think that somehow you can earn a right standing with God, I, I likened it to this. This is what I, what I tweeted. <laughs> I'm a tweeter. Yes, I am. And if you want to follow me or follow our church, we will keep you up to speed with it. I, all I do is tweet a lot of thoughts about what I'm going to be talking on in the next week. Uh, Just to kind of prime you a little bit. A lot of these, if you've been following me, you're going to hear a lot of the same things I've already said to you this last week. If you follow our church, the following week after we do a study, we send out a lot of the growing notes and a lot of thoughts to just kind of bring that back to your thoughts. But this is what I put down. I said, thinking you can erase your sin debt to God with your good works is like trying to erase the national debt with your pocket change. (laughs) By the way... By the way, on that, I put this site you, you could go to so you could be sick to your stomach. It's U.S. Debt Clock. Just type in U.S. Debt Clock. Do a Google search on that. And what you'll see, these numbers flashing every three seconds. We right now are going in debt of $100,000. Every three seconds, every three seconds, every three seconds. We are going to It made me sick. It made me sick. But that's a dim glimpse of how it should make you sick If you don't know Jesus and the debt you owe an eternal, holy, righteous God and there is no way that you can pay that debt the debt that you owe an eternal God should, should sicken you more than the debt that we owe here in America today if you really understood that and that would stir you and that would create even greater greater amount of unspeakable glorious joy when you look at the cross and go wow he paid it for me and he will never ever ever hold any of my sin against me that's what Romans 8.1 says <laughs> that's amazing that's an amazing truth and so That's that. That's that one. Let me hit you. uh, Let's continue reading. This is a long section here, so hang in there with me. Turn to the person next to you real quick and say, are you okay? Real quick. Are you okay? Okay. Because you're going to need to be okay because we're going to hit a lot of Scripture here. I love studying a scripture like this, kind of working through it. So uh, let's go through 9 through 35. So, you got, so you've got this Cornelius. God showed up. He dispatched some of his guys to go find Peter. So God's going to be working in Peter's heart. So here's, we, we've got the stories. We pick up the story, verse 9, chapter 10. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were Preparing it, he fell into a trance. Low blood sugar? Probably not. I mean, I think he's praying and that, but you kind of start thinking that. Wow, he's hungry, he's starving, and he says, "And saw the heavens opened, in something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air." So it's kind of a bizarre thing that he sees here. God's trying to make a point to him. He's certainly having a God encounter here. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again the second time, what God has made clean do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So so it took a little while for Peter to get the story of this. You can study back in Leviticus where they had these... Where the, the nation of Israel wouldn't eat certain things and all that. But what, what God is saying here, this has all been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so he's living kind of still a legalistic life. He's isolating himself from Gentiles. They're unclean, and we're trying to be clean. And so it's kind of an interesting. We'll get into it over the next coming weeks, even more on this. And he's going to talk more about it next, next week as we study the text. We're going to find out a little bit more about this whole idea. So he's, he's being racist, certainly, in this, in, in his approach. But God's going to set him free and bring freedom to him. And he says, This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, so he's trying to figure this out, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon who was called Peter, was, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him. So he's pondering the vision. He's trying to figure out, okay, what's this? So all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit speaks. By the way, in about two to three weeks, we're going to talk about how the Holy Spirit speaks to us, how to hear God's voice more clearly. The Holy Spirit is speaking to him here. And he says, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them. Now check this out. He is, Cornelius is so excited about this. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. I mean, he's gathered a whole group. Man, God showed up to me, and he's going to reveal something to me, and I'm going to tell everybody about this. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Look at Peter's attitude. But Peter lifted him up, saying, hey, hey, wait, stop, stand up, I too am a man and as he talked with him, he, in essence, Peter said, I'm not the big deal. I'm going to tell you about the big deal. I'm going to tell you about who, who God is. I'm nothing. I'm just the signpost. That's what he's saying. That's what we always need to remember. Peter shows a great deal of humility here. I'm just a vehicle of God. I'm a signpost for God. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa... And as for Simon, who is called Peter, he is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you. By the way, we're reading all of this because everything in this book is important for us to read. Even as we kind of labor through this, it's really important. The the writer here is showing us this is critical. This is significant. God's doing something here. Here. And so I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And look at these next two verses. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. That's a a big thought there if you took that and just kind of meditated on that. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So it's pretty interesting what he says here. Let me give you the next fill in the blank here. The being born again comes, oh, I'm sorry. Being born again, it is based on God's unmerited favor. It's by grace. So, what does it mean to show no favoritism? I I was grappling with this, this last week. What does that mean? And uh, James chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 gives us a good example of that because James tells the church, he says, when someone comes in and they're wearing a gold ring and they really look like they're all dressed up and they really look good, don't run to them and kiss up to them and kind of neglect a person that maybe isn't dressed, you know, so don't, don't make judgment based on superficial reasons, things like that, showing favoritism, kissing up to a certain group of people when you would kind of look down on other people, you kind of show contempt for others. If uh, if someone has a lot of money and you, ooh, he's got a lot of money, or look at him, or, you know, you see this happen in, in churches all the time. The church will pack out because they bring a big-name guy. There's almost kind of this showing of favoritism to a certain degree, like, hey, he's really something. And in God's eyes, he's not anything, really, in the sense, unless he has put his faith in God in Christ that, that God shows no favoritism. God doesn't elevate one person above another is what it I was I was grappling with that trying to understand it. So I asked my wife this last week, I said, so what does that mean? <laughs> I've been thinking about it for a real long time. And so in Nancy's wisdom, this is what she said. She's, she's so brilliant in so many different ways besides the fact that she married me. But other than that, uh, uh, actually, yeah. <laughs> That had nothing to do with her brilliance, but she was, uh, But this is what she said. We are all his favorites through faith in Jesus. We are all his favorites through faith in Jesus. I'm his favorite. <laughs> I am unbelievably special to him. Na, 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 na. Now, see, I can't do that because, he, because God loves all of us as if there's only one of us, and only he can do that. I've always been intrigued by the Gospel of John, and when you read through the Gospel of John, he constantly refers to himself, not as John writing this, but he always says the beloved. I'm loved by God. In other words, he's saying, I'm his favorite. Oh, by the way, I'm his favorite. <laughs> and the story goes on, and I'm his favorite. Did you know that if you really understand the cross and understand the implications of that, you can say that? Do you have that kind of a relationship with him that you have his undivided attention right now? That he loves you and he died for you as if there was only one of you? See, that's what it means when he says he shows no favoritism. God doesn't have a secret society of intimate friends. A lot of times people come to me thinking that I have some kind of hotline between God and I. You know, like, I know if Pastor Rick can come pray, and listen, you have that too through Jesus. <coughs> and so, that's, that's what it means by that. God shows no favoritism. That's, a, that's so significant. Here's what, one of the reasons why I'm a Christian today, because this is what separates Christianity from, from all the major cults and religions of our world today, is that in, in all religions, in all the religions, study them, I've studied them. In all the religions, the good are in, the bad are out. The good, you have to meet their standard. And then you're accepted, but if you can't, you're, you're out of here. Christianity, here it is. The humble are in, the proud are out. Humble, yeah. Acknowledge your need. Come to the Savior. You're in. He died for you. Yes, I want that. You're in. <laughs> That's it. So let me ask you this. Which one is more Exclusive. Oftentimes people say, "Well, Christianity—they're so exclusive, you know. Jesus, you know, only through Jesus." And all, you know, they—they say, "No, no, no, no. If you understand the gospel, the Christianity is the most inclusive. It's the most inclusive of every belief system. No other belief system compares. The good are in, bad are out. Christianity. The humble are in, proud gone. God opposes the proud; He gives grace to the humble." I'm his favorite, he died for me, he loves me, I could never earn it, I enter into it, I receive it, I bathe in his love, and it transforms my heart. Here's the next part of the story. Now listen to how he gives the gospel here, okay. Okay. Pretty significant because the next fill in the blank is it comes through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's how we're born again, is through the gospel of Jesus. So he, he gives, so he just told him, God shows no favoritism. Verse 36. And as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. So we have, we have access to the throne room of God through Jesus Christ. I have peace with God through Jesus Christ. You, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that, that John proclaimed. <clears throat> so he's appealing to the fact you guys know about this Jesus you heard about this Jesus you are living in an era right now that's what these guys are that you've heard about him so he's appealing to the, the fact that they've heard this, this message and this story about Jesus and then he goes on and says in verse 38 how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and he went about doing good doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him <clears throat> and we are witnesses of all that, that he did so now he's appealing to the fact that we were eyewitnesses we had a front row seat we saw this we were with him all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem they they put him to death by hanging him on a tree but God raised him up on the third day and made him and made him to appear not to all the people but to us who had been Chosen by God as witnesses. Now, notice this, he even says, not only that, we ate with him, we drank with him after he rose from the dead and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. He's going to come back and he's going to judge everyone. To him, all the prophets. So now he appeals to the, the scriptures. He said, This was a prediction. Read the scriptures. The prophets predicted this Messiah coming, and he fulfilled these prophecies. And he says prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so here's the next fill in the blank. It comes to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ because immediately you see happen in their lives while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Let's talk about this whole idea, of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can accept or reject Christ out of lazy or proud bias. People do it all the time. They both accept and reject Jesus out of pride or lazy, some form of bias. But this is what I've discovered. Careful, a careful look, a careful examination of His majesty will prove to be evidential, factual, historical, but most importantly, irresistible, irresistible. Our world is filled with stories about great heroism. Jesus Christ, really, I believe, is the underlying reality under which all of these other stories point. He is the ultimate hero your heart longs for when we watch those movies, read those books, or hear the stories. This last week, actually yesterday, I heard on the news, Fox News, and uh, it was pretty troubling. A military helicopter was shot down in eastern Afghanistan, killing 31 U.S. special operations troops, most of them from the elite Navy SEALs unit, that killed al-Qaeda leader, Osama bin Laden, along with seven Afghan commandos. It was the deadliest single incident for American forces in the decade-long war. Heroes. To give us freedom. That's why my utmost respect goes to our military police officers and firefighters. My wife and I were in In In-N-Out Burger, enjoying a hamburger, and we began to talk about this, what had gone down yesterday, and we both looked at each other. And I I, I told her, I said, you know what, people are bawling their eyes out right now because they've been devastated by the loss of these guys. There's families, there's kids, they aren't going to have a daddy and we both started crying An In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> we enjoyed the hamburger that much more because we realized, you know what? Even being an In-N-Out Burger, we're there because of the freedoms that are given to us because of those that lay down their lives for us. There, there are heroes, and those stories ultimately point to the greatest hero of all is Jesus. I'm going to show you a, uh, it's about a four or five minute video real quick, and we're going to wrap it up, but it's, uh, it's the uh, latest Medal of Honor winner. I want you to hear his story, and then we're going to tie it to the rest of this, and we'll finish it up. Watch this.
1: Tonight, America has a new Medal of Honor recipient, Sergeant First Class Leroy Petrie, who upon receiving the nation's highest military honor from President Obama this afternoon said, he is humbled to be singled out. Brian now joins us with an exclusive interview with one of the brave.
2: Well, Ann, that's right. Leroy Petrie always wanted to be a soldier growing up in New Mexico, and he succeeded. U.S. Army Ranger, six tours of duty in Afghanistan, two in Iraq. We sat down with him in Washington a few weeks back for the exclusive interview prior to his receiving the Medal of Honor. It was for an action in Afghanistan in a courtyard in the middle of a firefight. A grenade lands next to him and his young soldiers. He did what instinct told him to do, picked up the grenade, threw it, lost his hand and part of his arm as a result. As you'll see, he has the modesty that all of the now 85 living recipients of this medal possess.
1: I remember it vividly. It was, uh, I sat up I grabbed it and it was uh, like somebody had taken a circular saw and just taking it off right there. And I remember the smells, I could smell the burning of the flesh. It was, it was unreal, but, again, another weird thought went into my mind. I looked at it, and I said, where's the Hollywood squirt? Why isn't this thing spraying out a country mile? You'd
2: seen your share of movies.
1: <sighs> oh, yeah, and uh, the next thing kicked in was reality and my training. Hey, got to get this under control. I grabbed a tourniquet, which we keep readily accessible, was able to put on a tourniquet by myself, and uh, got back on the radio, called up for help, let them know the situation. And I uh, checked on my younger guys at that point, uh, just waited to see what their response was.
2: Guess what? Your younger guys were alive. Yeah. Had that gone off, what about a different story? You and them. Yes, sir. Everybody in movies calls a wound, any wound, a ticket out, a ticket home. And in my experience, with guys like you, it's a bummer because... Guys wired like you want to stay in the fight.
1: Yes. Was Was that that, your situation? That was the hardest part. One of our first sergeants at the time that was on the ground with us ran up to me and he said, hey, come on, we're going to get you out of here. And I kind of hit his arm away and I said, you're not taking me anywhere until you get those SOBs. The worst thing I thought about was I didn't want to see another casualty. Um, We lost a guy that day, uh, Christopher Gaither Cole. Um, He was coming to aid us at the time. And I felt helpless that I couldn't be there with them, staying there with them. And them all cheering me on, saying, hey, you're going to be all right. Right there by my side saying, hey, you saved us. Don't worry about it. And it was, it was tough. they are a good crutch. Were you right-handed? I was. That was, that was the challenge, writing left-handed. but. Uh, my son, who five, was five at the time, he's now seven. We probably have the
2: same penmanship.
1: We, we, he was getting ready for kindergarten, so I was getting ready with him. <laughs> we were doing uh, our ABCs and numbers and stuff.
2: And when people approach you and they instinctively stick out their hand to shake your hand, do you have to sometimes say, it's okay? It's
1: Oh, it's... no, I, I actually I enjoy that part. I don't tell people. Because if they don't notice it, and when they grab it, and then they're, you know, I like the jump I get out of them. <laughs> Everyone says, how do you have such a great attitude? And a lot of people I've met that were wounded, they have great attitudes too. But at the same time, a lot of these men and women, their limbs or their bodies are hurt or severed, whatever. They have their bodies stolen from them almost. They're driving down a road and they don't see the enemy. It's just you wake up or... You're laying there, and you're disfigured now. And yeah. I had the choice to do what I did, and fully mentally knowing about what the dangers were. And it was my choice.
2: U.S. Army Ranger Sergeant First Class Leroy Petrie, the nation's newest living recipient of the Medal of Honor. Effect.
0: So let me ask you this. What, how do you think his fellow, yeah, let's give him a hand. I think that's awesome. Praise God. Praise God. How do you think his fellow soldiers uh, feel about him? This guy gave his risked his life for me. Why wouldn't I go into a firefight with him? Why wouldn't I take on the world with this guy? I mean, there, certainly there were times, I'm sure, that uh, no doubt... There were times when his subordinates resented his orders as the leader, but after this, they had no doubt about his love for them and what he was willing to risk for them. And that's very commendable. I don't want to take anything from that, but listen to me. Everybody look up here. That is a dim glimpse. That is a dim glimpse of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Why wouldn't you want to go into a firefight with Jesus? Why wouldn't you want to live your life for him after all he's done for you? I mean, that's... That's the, the natural. When you hear the gospel message, when you hear what Jesus Christ has done for you, fundamentally, it changes the fundamental problem of our life is self-centeredness and self-absorption. And no longer is our life about us. It's about Him and His glory and then wanting others to see Christ more clearly through our lives. See, that's what being born again is. It, it changes us fundamentally right at the root of our lives it's His infinite suffering for you that motivates your ultimate love for Him, changing you at the core of your being. That's why Paul writes, Romans one16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Let me read the last part of this, and we wrap it up. So this is what will happen as you are born again. Two things that we see in the text. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers Uh, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So this is very similar to Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit was being poured upon the Jews. Now the Gentiles. And so, for they were hearing them. Here's the key verse. They heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? Just as we have, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Two things being born again, it is a, psychologi- it is a psychological and a sociological transformation. Those that are in Christ to become a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things become new. Here's what changes they were extolling God, so, psychological transformation. Praises the spontaneous overflow of our enjoyment of what we prize. What we ultimately prize controls our life, or what we ultimately prize we're going to praise, and that will control our lives. St. Augustine says, the key to life change is not the acts of the will, but the loves of the heart. Our problem is often disordered loves. We love anything and everything over and above God, but if we want to get those things in order, we have to love Him. They were extolling God. And then the next thing is that they were speaking in tongues, sociological, for those of us that, that believe that, is that this is a metaphor that God is saying that all people matter to God. So here's how we can put this all together, is that when God's love becomes the ultimate prize or the praise of my life, not only is my heart not vulnerable to being hijacked by a world of lesser loves, such as family, friends, work, play, money, which it often is, but it's reeled back in and those become subordinate to the highest love of my life, God. God. But also, I will no longer lose hope or have contempt for any person, race, or culture because of that. His love will so ravish my heart that I'll live for him and then that will overflow my life to others, to every race, culture, person in my life. And that means even my enemies. I can love my enemies because of his extravagant love for me. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Let's take a moment. God, we are overwhelmed by your presence here and your word and how you have spoken so clearly to us and uh, the fact that those who put their faith in Jesus, that you are alive in us, living in us today. God, let us see that the very slightest little inkling of desire for you is because you desire us and help us to see it's not about us getting our act together but coming to you and giving our lives to you and as you transform our lives From the inside out, Lord, we give you our lives, and it's based on on your favor that you give to us. By your grace, it's unmerited, and it's through the preaching of of your word, and so may we preach the gospel to ourselves each and every day of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and may that continue to bring change to our lives psychologically, our hearts, and the, the loves of our hearts, and sociologically, how we relate to others. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? Let me give you a blessing as you head out of here today. We'll continue on in our teaching series, chapter 11. Through this study, thank you so much for being here with us today. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace And may we live in the reality of the fact that those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is alive and living in you today, today, right now, as you leave this place, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.